challenging men to be great men. Don't just be a male, be a man, a great man. Welcome to the Great Man Podcast with your host, New York Times bestselling author and leader of men, Stephen Mansfield. Our story really begins early in the 1600s in a town in North England called Scrooby. And in that town, there was a small congregation of what might be called dissenters. They were people who did not want to be part of the established Church of England at that time. And so they formed a congregation that broke off, that dissented from the Church of England at the time. This was a time in which King James I was the King of England. Uh, This is the King James of the King James Bible. Shakespeare was one of his, quote, king's men. Uh, It was a time of great flowering of learning, but also great religious tension. Uh, This is also when Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Parliament in 1605. So tremendous tension, tremendous immorality, uh, and tremendous persecution of those who broke away from this king and his Catholic orientation and his hybrid church, part Catholic, part Protestant. Well, the persecution increased in England, and so finally, many of the members in this congregation in Scrooby, England, decided to leave the country, and they went to live in Holland, and this occurred about 1608. Now, these people were serious, serious Christians, and as they went to Holland to live in a place called Leiden, Holland, they decided to make a covenant, and they said in their writings at the time, that they bound themselves together in a covenant, in a church estate, they said, uh, so that they might walk in God's ways according to their best endeavors, whatsoever it should cost them, the Lord assisting them. So this is what they did. And they left England and they went to live in Leiden, Holland. Now, their lives in Holland were very, very difficult. They were working in uh, professions outside of the ones they had known in England. Holland was a very immoral place. So some of their children were falling away. But they lived as a congregation in the suburbs of Leiden, and they would end up living there for 12 years. Well, as they worshiped, as they prayed, as they lived together, they eventually uh, came upon a great passion to make a difference in the remote parts of the world. Here's what they wrote in their journal at the time. They said, we have a great hope and inward zeal of laying some good foundation, or at least to make some way thereunto for the propagating and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world, though we should be even as a stepping stone for others of performing so great a work. So they weren't satisfied anymore to simply live in Holland. They wanted to go to the remote parts of the world. They wanted to carry the gospel of the kingdom of Christ, they said. They wanted to make a difference, even if they were just the stepping stones of some small work. So finally, in 1620, they decided to sail to the new world. They made the arrangements. They kept praying. We have a very revealing little note in some of their writings. They said, we daily pray for the conversion of the heathens. It seemeth unto us that we ought also to endeavor and use the means to convert them. And the means cannot be used unless we go to them or they come to us. To us, they cannot come. Our land is full. To them, we may go. That they may be persuaded at length to embrace the Prince of Peace, Christ Jesus, and rest in peace with him forever. 
Now, by the heathens, of course, they meant the Indians that they had heard of, the Native Americans that they had heard of uh, in the New World. Of course, they wouldn't have been called Americans at that time. But that's who they're thinking of, the people we now know as the Indians in early American history. Well, they had a passion to convert these heathens. They decided to sail to the New World. Uh, Their pastor, a man named John Robinson, decided to stay in Holland and pastor the people who were not healthy enough to go or simply couldn't for other reasons. And so he preached a sermon. He blessed them. The people who could returned to England briefly, and they hired two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower. Well, they set sail in 1620, but just a few, just a short distance off the coast of England, the Speedwell began to take on water. So they all returned to England and to a port called Southampton, and all the people who were still willing to go got into the Mayflower. Now, you have to picture this. The Mayflower is about the length of a modern volleyball court. It had 104 people on them, on it. One third of those people were children. Think about that. One woman who was amongst that 104, one of the pilgrims, as they called themselves, was pregnant. Can you imagine taking a voyage like this pregnant? And so they all set sail on the Mayflower. Well, it was a miserable voyage. It lasted 66 days. They went through horrible storms, storms that would raise their ship way up high on the waves and then drop it down on the water again. Uh, They would be so tossed back and forth that the mast, the main mast, would dip into the water on one side and then the ship would be rolled over and it would dip into the water on the other side. Everybody inside the ship was being tossed around. You need to know that the water at that time of year is unbelievably cold. The U.S. Navy estimates uh, that a man will only live about three minutes if he falls into the North Atlantic at that time of year during which the Mayflower was sailing. It was miserable. And the crew of the ship were not among the pilgrims. Uh, They were not of their faith. And so many of them laughed at the pilgrims and treated them badly. One sailor in particular kept on calling them psalm singing puke stockings because those are the two things that the pilgrims were always doing, either singing psalms or puking because, of course, they were seasick. And yet the pilgrims kept on talking about how they wanted to, quote, be a stepping stone of the light of Christ in a new land. So they were miserable, but they really wanted to reach the new world and do what they thought God had called them to do. Now, they finally arrived. They finally arrived. And when they did, before they got off the ship, they bound themselves together in another covenant, We know this through history as the Mayflower Compact. And part of it says, in the name of God, amen. We whose names are undersigned, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. Now, a couple of unusual things in this. First of all, you notice that they bound themselves together and they said, we sailed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. We should always remember that because sometimes we're told that's not why they sailed. But the other thing we need to notice, kind of humorous, is that they thought they were in the northern parts of Virginia. That's what they had a charter for. That's what they had sailed for. But the storms blew them way north of that. And as we now know, they were actually 
off the coast of what we now call Massachusetts in the area we now know as Cape Cod. And so having now left the ship, they stepped off the ship and looked out into the wilderness. And there's a beautiful paragraph written by William Bradford, who was not only their governor later on, but also a historian of their movement. And uh, he wrote beautiful things, beautiful things about uh, them and what they experienced. But there's one paragraph in particular that he wrote that really gives you a sense of what they felt like when they first arrived in 1620. Bear in mind, by the way, that they arrived and, and got off the ship on December 21st. Uh, that's a, that's a astonishing late in the year. It was cold. Listen to what William Bradford wrote uh, that he remembered and knew from that time. He said, being thus past the vast ocean and a sea of troubles before in their preparation, they had now no friends to welcome them, nor inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies, no houses or much less towns to repair to, to seek for succor. And for the season it was winter, and they that know the winters of that country know them to be sharp and violent and subject to cruel and fierce storms, dangerous to travel to known places, much more to search an unknown coast. Besides, what could they see but a hideous and desolate wilderness, full of wild beasts and wild men? And what multitudes there might be of them they knew not. What could now sustain them but the Spirit of God and His grace? May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, our fathers were Englishmen, which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness. Now, I want you to think about those words. There they are. It's December 1620. The days are cold and dark. They can already see Indians, uh, natives out on the periphery of the trees. There are no houses, no inns, no towns, no one to welcome them. They're all sick in some way. They, they're stumbling around a little bit because they've been at sea for two months and a week. And they realize all they can rely on is the grace of God. Well, they get building, busy building their homes and a very funny thing happens. Uh, they know that natives are watching them. They make sure that some of the men have guns at the ready. And one day, a great big tall Indian by the name of Samoset walks out to the pilgrims, walks up to the guy he thinks is in charge and says, do you have some beer? Now, that is the exact truth. Uh, that's what William Bradford recorded. Uh, this man, Samoset, had uh, lost his tribe, basically, because the tribe had been decimated by disease. He had traveled around with some English sea captains, had apparently acquired a taste for beer, and that's what it, that's how he greeted the pilgrims. So it's kind of a funny thing that the first thing the pilgrims here said in the New World by a native is, do you have some beer? I think that's a wonderful thing for us to remember and laugh about regarding Thanksgiving. Well, Samoset and his more famous friend named Squanto uh, befriended the pilgrims and helped them. But it was late in the year. They had arrived too late. They had lost some of their goods at sea. They they hadn't brought enough. And of course, you can't just start planting in December and have a harvest the next year. And so a starving time began. This is what they called it, a starving time. It was a truly horrible uh, time in which more than half of all of the pilgrims died. Every family had someone who died of some disease or of starvation or of something uh, in that next season. 
Well, they, they got wise and they began to plant not a common plot of land, which they had done thus far, kind of a practice carried over from England, but they began to plant for the next fall individual plots of land. So every family tended its own land, worked hard, uh, produced more. They, they farmed more land. They learned more from the Indians about how to farm and also how to hunt and harvest the sea. And when it came to the fall of 1621, uh, they finally had uh, an abundance, a great harvest, and they decided to have a Thanksgiving and the governor at the time called for a Thanksgiving and and their Indian friends heard of it and decided to join. And here's what Governor Bradford wrote of that first Thanksgiving. He said, our harvest being th- being gotten, our governor sent four men on fowling. That meant hunting for birds so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. And they four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us and among the rest, their greeted their greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and the others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we are partakers of plenty. Now, let me put that in plain English. The pilgrims finally had an abundant harvest. They decided to have a Thanksgiving celebration. It was set to last three days. And the Indians were invited to join them, but the Indians or the natives uh, numbered 90. Can you imagine? That was actually larger than the number of the the pilgrims. And so uh, the natives went out and shot nine, I'm sorry, five deer and brought that venison in. And uh, the natives also brought other food. And the the Englishmen, of course, the pilgrims cooked what they knew. They went out fowling. They went out and got seafood. Uh, They went out and harvested whatever they could. And they had a great big Thanksgiving celebration, three days. And it says that they had shooting contests and they gave themselves to games. And we know from some other writings that uh, a little bit of a humorous food fight broke out at one point. There was a little bit of throwing of fruit until the uh, elders of the church stopped it. And they gave thanks to God. And one of the things that was a big surprise to the pilgrims is that the natives taught them how to do a certain thing with corn. They taught them how to make popcorn. So this was the way that they celebrated. And this was the first English Thanksgiving in the New World. It's the one that we remember and that is often referred to. Uh, It's the one that Abraham Lincoln commemorated and uh, turned into uh, sort of a, a day of a prayer and thanksgiving. And then, of course, Franklin Roosevelt, our president during World War II, uh, turned Thanksgiving into a, a national holiday. And, and I believe he's the one who made it the third Thursday in November. There's one thing that I want to tell you and urge on all of you who are listening to this Um, Thanksgiving is a great day. Yes, enjoy your food and your football. That's certainly appropriate, certainly in keeping with what the pilgrims did. But there's a tradition that has come out of New England over the years, and it is that before, when the food is all prepared on Thanksgiving Day and people are about to eat, that someone, usually the children, put just five kernels of corn on each plate. And the starving time of the pilgrims is remembered. 
and their words, that they sailed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, that they wanted to be a stepping stone of the light of Christ and reach the natives and and do a great work in a new land for God. Those words are remembered, and there's a moment of prayer. And then, of course, the great feast is served, and people eat, and the day is enjoyed. I want to urge you to do that this year. Wherever you are, wherever you're eating, families, groups, friends, I want to urge you, just, just put a few kernels of corn. You can just go get some popcorn, some little popcorn seeds from your cabinet. Put them on the table or pluck it off some, some corn from the cob if that's what you're serving. Put five kernels on the, each plate. Take a moment as you pray over the feast. Just remember uh, the vision that was laid into the foundation of these United States, this country, this land, and the desire of our forebears to live, to voyage, to serve for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. To join the Great Man community or to book Stephen to speak at your men's event, go to greatman.tv. You'll learn about Stephen Mansfield's two essential books for men, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men and Building Your Band of Brothers, as well as some other great resources for helping you become the great man you are made to be. The Great Man Podcast is a Mansfield Group production.